0: to the Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I will be speaking with author Aisha Chaudhry about her new book, The Color of God. Aisha was born in Toronto and has her Ph.D. from New York University. She is a professor of gender and Islamic studies at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Aisha.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You know, The Color of God is a memoir, and whenever I interview someone about their memoir, I always have to ask, how family and friends have responded uh, to the memoir and to the depiction of them in it. And that seems particularly relevant here. What, what's been the response?
1: Um, it's been actually, I mean, it's obviously extremely nerve-wracking to write a story of your family when there's so many other people in the family who've had their own
0: experiences
1: with the same events <laughs> that you're describing. Um, and that was something that I thought about deeply while I was doing the writing. I wanted to make sure that I created a space to be really clear about uh, the playfulness of memory, the slipperiness of memory, the fact that memory isn't, um, is not re- it's not, not relating like a particular truth um, so much as it is re- relating stories that we tell tell ourselves about the past in order to understand our present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that in order to make sure that there was space for other people's stories. Uh, to exist as well, and to not invalidate them, and I think that that really uh, worked actually, because my siblings read the book, um, my family read the book, and they kind of like devoured it. They read it really quickly because, of course, everybody wants to see, uh, you know, where they are, how they're depicted. Uh, right. if they remember the things in the same way that I'm talking about the, the major events, um, and you know, overall the response was, you know, it was extremely positive. Uh, they felt they felt seen, they felt heard, and they felt they felt like there are stories that, that I wasn't telling their stories and that I wasn't negating their stories either. So that was really, I was really grateful for that. There were mm-hmm. moments where they were like, ah, you know, you got that little part wrong or you didn't mention that I did this thing too. You know, I, I mentioned my older brother um, made a basement in, in my parents' home and my younger brother was like, um, I was working really hard on that basement as well and I was like his assistant. And so... You know, he kind of felt like I should have mentioned that as well. But it was like, you know, little things like that. But other yeah. than that,
0: um, they but, were, yeah. it, was,
1: it was kind of amazing.
0: Yeah. Overall positive, yeah. You know, positive. Yeah. Well, before we turn to the specifics in the book, I have one other question about memoir writing. I've taught mm-hmm. memoir writing classes, and one of the things that oh. comes up often is that people will say, when they're required to kind of put pen to paper and recount things in their lives, that they and have to explain them to somebody that's going to read them, that they actually learn things that they, they hadn't thought about before. Have, did you have that experience as you wrote the book? Oh,
1: my God. Yes, all that time. That was such a that's, that's such a beautiful way to describe the experience of memoir writing. Because I feel like so much of it is actually like processing and understanding your own life and why you're telling yourself the stories that you're telling yourself and why you're telling it in this way and not another way. Because when you're putting... Pen to paper, suddenly you begin to see like the creative power you have in the way that you tell your story. Um, and then, and the other thing that happened uh, that happened to me, anyways, was that you know I would put these different pieces or these different experiences next to each other, and suddenly I would see them fitting together in a way that I had never considered before. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I would say that that was true for my siblings reading um the the book as well. One of my siblings, my one of my brothers, said he said that in a way he saw our parents as people in a way that he had somehow never seen them before. Like he saw them as people living their own lives and he had only thought of them as his parents in relation to himself. But suddenly he could see them, you know, with their own set of circumstances trying to make the best decisions that they could. And it was like, he suddenly had an understanding that he would have never had otherwise. And I felt the same way as well. Like writing the book, I was trying to, you know, really try to understand why they'd done the things they'd done that made the choices they made which helped me understand myself so much better.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, and you really do present a full picture uh, of them uh, in a good way. Well, let's jump into the book. Let's start with something simple. Can you explain to listeners where the title of the book comes from?
1: Well, the title of the book is actually, it's like there's two places it comes from. It Mm -hmm. comes from, so it's called The Color of God, and... Uh, The color of God is actually a phrase from the Quran. It's called Sibratullah. So there's a verse in the Quran that says, the color of God, what is more beautiful than the color of God? Um, And my nephew was named Sibratullah, the color of God. That was his name. And uh, when he was four and a half, he passed away unexpectedly. Um, And his passing away really caused me to have a crisis of faith. I was very young. I was in my 20s when it happened. And I suddenly was thrown into this um, it felt like this like dark hole where I didn't know how to find find myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. Um, I had trouble figuring out what I believed, and so it set me on a journey of like re rethinking or reconsidering um all of the ideas that I had been raised with about what it meant to live a good life, what the purpose of life was, what the meaning of life was, and what it is that I wanted out of my life and so it was sort of like a, a, a decade long journey that culminated I think in the writing
0: of this book okay well and in the book your parents you detail that your parents left Pakistan and they moved yeah. to Canada and mm-hmm. in part of the book you talk about their attempts initially to assimilate, but it mm-hmm. never it never really works out because of racism and xenophobia which they confront right. and this right. leads and it was remarkable to read it this leads them to make a decision to reject that new culture where they're living in canada can you talk a little bit about that and the decision for by them to pursue a more islam-centered life
1: right um so that's like you know in the first that's what the second chapter assimilation i sort of set the stage for the life that i'm going to live which is that my parents you know they come to canada for economic reasons like they're um you know they're like so they're sort of they're displaced from pakistan to Canada after being displaced from India to Pakistan. So very recently, in you know, um, India and Pakistan have been partitioned. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents' families moved from India to Pakistan. It's like a violent, horrible journey in which their families lose everything along the way. It's like the largest mass migration in modern history. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people who migrate have trouble finding economic uh, stability. And so a lot of people are forced to... Leave the country in order to make a better future. So my parents are one of those people. <clears throat> they come to Canada, and they, but they're not coming to Canada. And that, that backstory is important because they're not coming to Canada because they think it'll, you know, it's like the dream. They want to live in Canada, and they don't want to live in Pakistan. They actually want to live in Pakistan, but they can't. They can't um, find economic stability there, so they come here for economic stability to Canada, and they intend to return when they when they come. But when they're in Canada initially, they're, they're trying really hard to assimilate. And like many people of color who come from different countries um, where their color is not is not really a big deal, they discover their race when they come to a white supremacist country. And so they deal with a lot of racism and xenophobia and bigotry. Um, and they are really hurt by that. Like they kind of never thought of themselves as brown and suddenly that's what they are. They never really thought of themselves as hockey, and now that's what they are. Um, and they, my father works blue-collar jobs, and he's trying to find a way to, like, you know, really be part of the, this place that he's moved to. And so is my mother, and they just keep on facing these rejections. And at some point, my father goes to a Friday prayer. And they're not very religious at this point. My father doesn't regularly go to Friday prayers. But he goes to a Friday prayer, and there happens to be a preacher at the mosque that Friday who's giving a sermon, and uh, and this preacher is a medical doctor who's sort of become a religious scholar in Pakistan. He's visiting from Pakistan, and he's preaching a particular kind of puritanical, uh, post-colonial nationalist version of Islam, where he's basically making this argument that the people in the audience who are mostly Pakistani Muslims or Indian Muslims, but in, in that case Pakistani, he's saying that, you know, they're special not just because they're Muslim, but because they're Pakistani. So suddenly he begins to like, my father gets this sense of like, oh, my identity, instead of being something that can be held against me, can be something that actually gives me pride. It's like the first time he has that experience. And so he, it gives him this sense of like belonging to something bigger than himself. And it's very moving and meaningful to him. And so suddenly my parents are kind of attracted to this puritanical version of Islam. That's a very like, you know, a marginal kind of Islam. It's not representative of the majority of Muslims but it speaks to them because it allows them to like take pride in the very thing that they're being persecuted for. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and so when they sort of like sort of adopt this kind of Islam, they change the way that they dress, they start, you know, my mother starts wearing hijab, my father grows out his beard. Um, now when people like sort of, you know, hurl racist insults at them, they feel like they're doing it because they're Muslim rather than because they're Brown. Yeah. And that's a really, crucial and important shift for them because
0: yeah.
1: you know with the race they feel like they can't control that like that's the color of their skin but with their religious expression they feel like they're in control of that and so they're deciding um to to address this way and to with so when they're persecuted they feel like they get virtue points
0: virtue yeah to well, you, and
1: so it gives them a sense of
0: control yeah i was meaning. i, I what, one thing that struck me and you mentioned it in your answer is it gives them a sense of belonging to something bigger yeah. But you make, an op, you make an observation in the book that, that struck me, and I'm going to quote it. He mm-hmm. said that, quote, the irony is that the religious identity my parents fashioned in resistance to racism was formed by that racism, close quote. Right. Can, can you explain that briefly?
1: Well, it's like, you know, I feel like it's like they, my parents, when they kind of um, adopt the kind of Islam that they adopt, they don't go back to the Islam that they were raised with when they were growing up in Pakistan. Right, they don't go back to the Islam that their parents were living, that their siblings were living, that their cousins were living. All of the people around them that they had been that they had grown up with, they, they adopt this particular puritanical kind of Islam that is, you know, like the hijab that my mother is wearing. It's not a it's not a covering she ever wore in Pakistan. It's a very like Western like that 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 form of hijab itself is like a very Western-inflected influenced kind of hijab, like the very form of it. Um, you know, like the when my parents eventually go back to Pakistan and visit or try to live there, their own families are like, what are you doing? Like, that's, yeah. that's so extreme. Your form of Islam is so extreme. So they become like, you know, alien to their own family in the kind of Islam that they adopt. So it's like, it's a kind of like, it's, it, their Islam is kind of like a caricature because the um, the preacher who was like formed, like who who they were influenced by, was also like very influenced by colonialism and he was kind of coming up with a kind of Islam that kind of inverted, you know, colonialist ideas of the other. So instead of like you know, colonialism being like white people are better than everyone else, like a white supremacist Islam, he was preaching a kind of Islam where religion replaced race. So he was like, Muslims are better than everybody else. So it's like a Muslim supremacist Islam instead of a white supremacist Islam. So it's still supremacist.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and it's, Kind of you know, and it is like the kind of Islam that you see portrayed in movies where they're like, Oh, these boogeymen are really terrifying, mm-hmm. um, because they think they're better than us or they want they think that they should be ruling very much the same way that colonialists were like, We think we're better than you, we think we should be ruling you. Um, and it's not an Islam that is actually you can really find in amongst a lot of most Muslims.
0: You know, one of the things that struck me, and I don't know if this is the proper way to say it, but it seemed like they were confronted with this extreme mistreatment in Canada, and so they responded in part by going to the extreme end of the Islamic uh, spectrum.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. All right, so let me ask you, you also point out, and and this resonated for me as I read it, uh, that your parents pursued this in part and that it, quote, fashioned a shield and a protection from racism for them, close quote. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think maybe you've just explained that a little bit. In reference to the extremism, um, you know, many folks listening, unfortunately, in America, they think that, you know, all Islam is extremist. But you write something that I think is really important for us to to think about. You write, quote, extremism is one of those words that does a lot of work, but is somehow empty of meaning, close quote. Can, Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Right. I mean, so this is like, you know, this is like the chickiness, (laughs) kind of the politics around writing about something about uh, like a a topic that is so politicized, but trying to write about it honestly, but then having to work through all of the politics that are around it. Uh, You know, I think extremism is one of those words, as I say in the book, that is it's devoid of meaning and it takes on meaning depending on the speaker. So like Mm
0: -hmm. depending on
1: who you are and what you're afraid of determines what extreme is for you, like what you find threatening. Um, and we know that because like the meaning of extreme changes from different, from place to place, from context to context. Um, and there's a way in which we can uh, label somebody extreme and then we can label them dangerous and immoral and other that I find really troubling. Um, and so, you know, depend, and so that's one of the things that I sort of explore in that chapter on extremism is like, you know, is Queen Victoria an extremist? Is a particular... American white convert who preaches a patriarchal version of Islam an extremist? Is this preacher that my parents meet who is like very much designing in Islam that is post-colonial but that reflects colonial ideas? Is that extremist? Like what do we think is extremist? Is um is Black Lives that matter is Black Lives Matter extremist? Like who who do we decide is extremist? Right, right. Um and these questions are really important and it's important for us, I think, whenever we hear the word extremist. To pay attention to this person who's using that word to be like, what do yeah. you mean by that word? And what does this, and what, what work is this word doing for you? Yeah. It's Sort of the question that it raises for me. And in the case of my parents, I feel like this version of Islam, when I talk about it as a shield, like extremism, like if you hold on to ideas that are considered extreme around you, sometimes those ideas can work as a shield and they can be initially a protective idea. So I kind of have, com- I'm trying to have compassion for different ways of thinking as well. Um, and I think in the case of my parents, when they held on to this form of puritanical Islam, it did shield them from racism. Like I did not grow up with ideas about my brownness. But my I didn't grow up with any ideas about my race being a problem. Actually I I you know I figured that people didn't like us because we were Muslims yeah. and it was religious persecution. And it wasn't really until I stopped wearing hijabs that I in America that I was like oh shoot like
0: I'm brown you know <laughs> and the, I was the, the problem that I see for the shield analogy is that it, and you let's just follow that analogy out if you used it as a shield you're going to block out part of your site um, yeah. and and so you're going to miss stuff and unfortunately you know we we have this need and I wish I was more educated psychologically, but we have this need to find negative others in our life, and I think that's uh, at the root sometimes of extremism. All right, but let's, let's talk, let's shift gears a little bit, and let's talk about family and the role that family plays in Islam. In the book, you refer to family as being mythicized uh, in Islam. Uh, tell, tell us what you mean by that.
1: Well I think I was talking about it being family being mythicized like everywhere. Like we mm-hmm. have this like, you know, in society, uh, and so Islam like Muslims are no exception, is that we have this idea of family as this like, you know, warm bubble of like loving people who are symbiotic and who care for each other. Um and it's like it's a beautiful it's a beautiful dream, it's a beautiful idea. The families are so much messier and so much more complicated in real life <laughs> than than that, you know, than this right. simplistic understanding. Um And I feel like part of the book is me coming to terms with that. You know, it's sort of like when you grow up, you know, your parents are when you when you're when you're a child, your parents are gods, And then as you grow up, they become people. And that's like a very devastating thing for a lot of people to come to terms with. Um, And I think it's the same thing with these ideas of like, you know, the family or like the religion or community or the nation state. These ideas of like these like the ideals of what these things are supposed to be are so different than the messy realities that they actually are on the ground. Um, and so I was trying to, like, sort of uh, I, I disentangle some of those ideas by thinking deeply about, you know, experiences, like embodied experiences that I had in my family
0: mm-hmm. and
1: trying to understand, like, you know, where every single person was coming from in those experiences, but also understanding that, you know, like, what does it mean to live a full and thriving life and be in relationship, actually, in good relationship, some kind of a good relationship with family without actually Believing in the myth of what family is supposed to be.
0: Yeah, appropriate. Well, look, since we're talking about family, can I get you to read maybe an excerpt um, right. that relates to family and 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 uh, is in the book?
1: I will. Thank you so much for allowing me to do that. For inviting me to do that. Um, well, so I'm going to read a short little passage. It's a passage that um, I. It's like it's in a chapter called Death, and it's the end of that Ooh. chapter that I'll read for you. And the chapter is about. Uh, me as a child, being taught a lesson about stealing. Okay. And so this idea is that, you know, if you steal something, um, you should be punished for that. And so I'm not going to talk about the punishments in this piece, but I'm going to talk about, like, the lesson that I learned from okay. it. So, that's, so it's, the end, it's, um, it's the end of the chapter, so okay. I'll, I'll read it now. Mm-hmm. There is a contested story about the British East India Company involving the thumbs of Bengali weavers. According to oral accounts, the thumbs of Bengali weavers were cut off by the British to prevent them from competing with the East India Company in the textile trade. But a written account by a colonist himself states that the East India Company's labor practices were so horrific that Bengali weavers cut off their own thumbs rather than allow their labor to be stolen, their labor to be stolen by the British. Where does the truth of the missing thumbs lie? In the oral history of indigenous peoples, or the written history of colonizers. Memories, too, it turns out, can be stolen. In the episode of The Hatchet, I was never physically hurt. The mere threat of violence was enough to put the fear of God in me. The fear of God can be more merciful than the fear of the state. God can be shaped and reshaped by us, but we are helpless before the state. And it worked. I learned the lesson I was supposed to that people and things can be owned, that some people own more things than others, that ownership is virtuous, and even more, it is a protected right. Taking something that someone else claims ownership over is called theft. It does not matter how little you have or how much they have or how they came by what they have. Taking it is a crime and a sin. The, The crime is both moral and legal. Laws. Religious and secular punish the thief. Punishment is often physical, whether it involves cutting off a hand or confining you to a cage, stealing years from your life. I learned this lesson living on stolen land, land stolen by Europeans from the indigenous people whom they mistook as Indians and then called Indians anyways. Stealing their identities, their names, their, their land, their kin, their children, their language. Teaching us that what is not owned can still be stolen. So the lesson I learned was this: the powerless have only a merciful God to rely upon, whereas the pa- so. So the lesson I learned was this: the powerless have only a merciful God to rely upon, whereas the powerful can rely on the mercy of the state.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I had made note of that quote as well that you end with. Um, Let's talk about, because we're going to run out of time here in a little bit. So your parents convert uh, to this, what we'll call extreme form of Islam, and that obviously has an effect on you. You're going to school in Canada as a young woman, and now you start to dress in the form that's required of you, wearing the hijab, the head covering. Um, I'm curious, as you were doing that, were you doubting that this is what you should be doing? Or were you, you know, as they would say, all in on it, thinking this is what I really do need to be doing?
1: Right. Great question. Um, so, you know, I call the form of Islam that they converted to, and I think convert is such a good word for mm-hmm. what they did. Uh, I call it Puritan, like the Puritan form of Islam, uh-huh. um, because it's more its more like, I think, truer to what Puritanism really is. Like yeah. it's, a, it's a search for purity in a, in a certain kind of way, which I think is actually very toxic. Um, in any, in any of the ways that we do it in our society. Um, and my parents, yeah, I'm born the year that they adopt this kind of Islam. So I, I'm born into this like home that has this zeal of new conversion. Um, and so I started wearing hijab since I was five. Um, and then I wore niqab, a face veil from grade 10 to the end of my master's so for 10 years um, in public school, which was a very intense experience. And I think, um, the question is like such a good one and there's no clear answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Like in the sense that, you know, I think when I was li- really little, I wanted to be like my mom and I wanted to wear hijab and it was really fun for me um, when I was being persecuted or harassed or uh, hit for it at school. Like that did not feel great. But I think at some point, um, and I, and there were times when I definitely did not want to wear niqab um, because I knew that it was just going to, you know, just if I wore niqab and I went to school, it was like, Every day I was like, you know, just it was, every day was kind of torturous in a certain kind of way because people, children, young people, grown people um, have strong feelings about, uh, about what women wear and can be very cruel about them. Um, and so it was very difficult. And so I think at some point, psychologically, I had to make a choice because also everybody kept asking me to make a choice. Like, are you wearing this because you want to or are you wearing it because your parents are forcing you to? Um, And the answer wasn't actually clear cut in either direction. I mean, I was being pressured to wear it at home, but also at some point I wanted to wear it. Like it became part of my identity and I felt like, well, why can't I just wear what I want to wear? And why can't people just leave me alone? Like, isn't that what freedom means? Like uh, that women can wear whatever they want to um, and they can make whatever choice they want. Why is it that I can only be free if I wear a certain kind of clothing and not free if I wear other kinds of clothing? So um, at some point, it did become a part of my identity, um, and 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 it was, you know, it was very. I was very conflicted about it throughout, and I think that's one of the things that I try to capture in the book because I think so many narratives about Muslim women covering or not covering are so they're so simple, mm-hmm. they're so clear cut, but they're actually much messier and much more complicated
0: yeah, uh, yeah.
1: choices, and yeah. they change over time.
0: Yeah. All right, so the book ends, and we've covered a lot, and folks, you've got to pick the book up because there's a lot more than we can cover in the time we have. The book ends kind of where it begins, um, which is with the the untimely death of your nephew. And a question that I think might surprise a lot of folks that don't know a lot about Islam, uh, or this version of Islam, and the question of whether or not your nephew's mother, uh, your, your sister, and you and any other women can actually attend the burial. Talk to me right. about that, that restriction, which, doesn't, right. seem, which so, doesn't seem to make any sense.
1: Right. Well, there's this idea that, you know, men, that, that men will, that when someone dies, men go to the graveyard and they bury the child, uh, they bury the person, whoever has died, um, and that the women don't go to the graveyard because women are very, like, there's all kinds of arguments for why that's the case. Like, they're very emotional. They're like, um, they'll cry a lot. I don't know. I, I, none, of the, none of the reasons that I've heard work for me and I find them very troubling. So, um, but you know, because my parents followed this puritanical version of islam they they believed that women should not so this is not what all Muslims do, but this was what my parents like the mm-hmm. the cult the what I call the cult that they were following, believed in was that they wanted they didn't want the women to be present women women never went to the graveyard and so um to the burial and so my sister and and us like we wanted to be there to bury you know to bury this child and it, it kind of creates this confrontation, and so mm-hmm. in, in this way, like in that last chapter, I'm sort of doing in a way I think I'm doing a theology of death. Like I'm thinking about like how do we grieve, and what what is the cost of a pure a puritanical version of Islam on grief? Like what how does it like how does it cut at the humanity of our our at our humanity actually? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Yeah, there's this painful conversation that happens in that chapter where, you know, we do actually end up going to the graveyard and we do bury him. But it's like, again, it's not, it's not easy. It's not, you know, it's not comforting. It's, um, it's fraught. It's very
0: fraught. Yeah, but it, it it seemed to me to be just absolutely appropriate way to kind of close the loop on the, the memoir, the story that you're telling and the conflict that had developed. Well, we're going to be out of time here in a second, but I want to end with um, really a great thought-provoking quote in your book. And at least for me, uh, because your your writing is so poetic, one that kind of summed up an arc, at least one of the arcs in the story, and, and really is a cautionary tale for all of us. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but you write, quote, The Puritan in us often expresses herself as the god of rage. But somewhere deep down inside, she knows that she's actually the god of sorrow. But she cannot see. Her eyes were torn out, close quote. Give me a brief explanation of what you're trying to convey there. Well, I think that, you know, whenever we see
1: people's anger, and whenever we feel anger, like I'm just curious about how often that anger actually is masking sorrow. You know, we have so much sorrow and we live in societies where there's such little space for us to explore that sorrow you know we're sort of asked to like cover it up and move on and work you know and um get to work and do what we need to that we don't we don't take the time to properly mourn all the things that need to be mourned i mean at this moment i'm thinking about you know climate where you know we're all in the middle of major climate change and the world is changing the trees are dying the you know there's so much happening around us and there, you know, there's so much ecological grief even that we don't spend time or you know, we don't take the time to think about and to work through. But then that's just like one kind of grief that we are experiencing um, at, like as, as humans on this planet that we are on. But, um, and so I think that's what I wanted to bring up in that uh-huh. piece was like how often, how often our anger is just
0: sorrow. Yeah, it, well, it fits with the, with the arc of the book. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writer's Forum, and I have had the privilege today of speaking with author Aisha Chaudhry about her new book, a memoir, called The Color of God. Aisha, is there a website or other social media sites that folks can go to to learn more about you and to learn more about the book?
1: I I think the book, they should just read the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know it's on Amazon. Uh, I assume it's on other uh, sites as well. And so, yeah, they can simply pick it up there good. So, I, I Aisha, thank, th- thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much, I appreciate it.